Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. Hits it inside the park. Home run. Doug Glanville. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte. Skinny Jason Stark <laughs> is against humanity. Take away the human elements of Starkville. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for The Athletic. As always, joined by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer Doug Glanville. And, you know, we do this every week. So if you enjoy listening, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And remember to give us a review. Thanks. Okay, Doug, now that I have that out of the way... How are you this week? As always, a lot has happened since we last assembled here in the Starkville Town Square. Yeah, I'll tell you. I mean, it's a hourly evaluation here, and I mean, it's uh, yeah. really. Uh, I mean, baseball on the move, and all these first-time events of 2020 baseball. Uh, I also did start the uh, new semester at University of Connecticut, so I could, uh, you know, add the extra professor title there, as you've uh, so uh, frequently put on my hat. <laughs> So uh, yeah, it's 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 a, another year. Actually, it's another reason. Like wow, time is kind of flying. I just remember us talking about last semester. So uh, here we are, the, the the new class, and a whole lot else to talk about in sports and society, <laughs> given what we were facing yeah. in 2020. So uh, exciting, yeah. but also harrowing at the same time. Yeah, well, we'll, we will talk about that later. But first, I think we should talk about the trade deadline, which is barely in the rearview mirror. Uh, In a few minutes, we're going to kick around what this deadline felt like from the inside with Mark Shapiro, uh, the president of the Blue Jays, who are one of the busiest teams out there. But, Doug, first, I'm I'm just curious how you saw it. Uh, I'm going to recap. We had 17 trades Monday, just on deadline day. We had 24 trades in the last 48 hours, and we had 75 deals just by the San Diego Padres alone. Uh, no, no, we didn't. <laughs> but you know what the Padres did? They did something I can't remember. They traded for 10 players, nine of them big leaguers. So they uprooted basically a third of their roster. That is just wild, man. <laughs> Doug, what did you think? Oh. Well, Adam Gold is a host in, in Raleigh, North Carolina radio, and he texted me asking if I had been traded to the Padres also. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, oh, wait, were you? I forgot I, to check. I, I should double check. I said, yeah, Mickey Lolich is, uh, is, and then a player to be named later. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, we were kind of wondering, right, what was gonna, going to happen with the fact that you have such a small sample size, which is a nightmare. And you did suspect that maybe there'd be some more established veteran experienced players moving because at least you can say, all right, I don't really know what their numbers mean in 2020, but I can at least have a body of work to reference. So, but the fact that, you know, you're also looking for that domino. Okay. If one falls, will everybody follow? Cause nobody really knows what to do. And you know, because they're like, all right, do you go? Do you, all right, who's going to trade? But the fact that it was so concentrated, but you know, Padres, Blue Jays, 
uh, and these moves and the fact that so few teams are actually out of it given so many teams are making the postseason. There just was so few sellers. So uh, the fact that these teams like, like Toronto and San Diego were so bold, uh, you know, they, they clearly are saying this is the year we're going to make that move. And why not 2020? It was unbelievable. Um, you know, remember back in the 1990s, I think there was a show called Supermarket Sweep, right? Where they'd give people a shopping cart and they'd run around the supermarket and they'd load as much stock, much stuff in their cart as they could in like 30 seconds. That's kind of what A.J. Preller reminded me of at this deadline. <laughs> now, you know what? I, I like what they did and I applaud any team that goes forward in this day and age, especially team that gets to the point they're at with all the prospects they'd accumulated. But I have a question for you, Doug. Is it possible that they did too much? I mean, they were already playing great. And as I said, they were they, they uprooted about a third of their big league roster. And I, so there was that. I also can't remember a team trading for two new catchers basically in the same day in the middle of a season. So what do you think, Doug? Is is it is it possible they overdid? No, it? it's a great question, Jay. I mean, it, it's you know you talk about first of all, you obviously we're in this health crisis world, and you're you're all the more insular than you've ever been. You know, as a team. I mean, yes, historically before this, you're traveling together, but now this is the stakes are so different, and players coming from all over, converging on what is probably this extra special level of intimacy when it comes to just players looking out for each other, you know, just the safety component. And so you have no idea how that will play out at all. And 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 so it's not one of those equations to say, well, you know, this guy, we're weak in catching or we need a left-handed reliever. You're very concerned about the environment you're, you're going to change given that new people are coming in. And the fact is, you know, if you've played well until this point and you know that you have these three games, you know, these short series, right, where you can – knock off a top-seeded team just by having the right pitcher at the right time. So, you know, it's a little different about how you figure out what's going to work in the season versus what's going to work in the postseason. And with all that uncertainty, I, you know, I did expect some teams just to be frozen and say, I'm not going to do anything. Uh, but I didn't think it would be so far of a pendulum swing where you're basically replacing a 30-year roster uh, and where you have to have a trade deadline where you drive an entire bus to bring people to the stadium. You know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, once again, with 2020, you always have to wait to see what happens because something else is about to happen. Yeah, that's for sure. Now, look, you've been in these clubhouses at the deadline. I know your players are always waiting for the front office to do something, to bring in a guy or two. But... Like, I've always thought it was maybe precarious to disrupt the chemistry of a group that had something good going on more than you needed to. It's one thing to bring in a piece here, a piece there, nine pieces. Yeah. Well, and, and again, right. And that, and that may be part of the environment we're in. Like, they didn't feel like to, to trickle it out. They're like, okay, let's just do this all at once. <laughs> I think back to, I'm not sure what year with Phillies where we traded for Turk Wendell and, and Dennis Cook. And that was something like we were kind of looking for bullpen help and we were kind of open to it. But then I look at 2003 with the Chicago Cubs and I was one of those pieces from Texas. And remember, we had a whole lot of guys. I mean, it wasn't, I don't know if it was nine, but it was a lot. Eric Karras, Tony Womack, Randall Simon, Tom Goodwin, Troy O'Leary, you know, Mark Grudzelanek. I mean, so we made a lot of moves right. and they were veterans. They were, we, we were kind of all established players. 
that's you know that might be the parallel I could possibly make, uh, but obviously minus the health crisis. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's it's uh it's it's really different. And uh, you know, to the Cubs' credit, that year we were I think we were about 500 when I got over there, and like 54 and 54 or something like that, and we we did pull it off. But I mean, it could have gone completely south. So you know, we'll see what happens this time around. Yeah. You know, I did survey a bunch of executives on this, uh, and not one of them thought it was a problem just because of the quality of the players that the Padres brought in. Um, you know, there was some talk about the catchers, but the, just the tremendous makeup of the two catchers in particular, um, Jason Castro, Austin Nola. Um, so let's let's see, right? The, the Padres will now be the team to watch. I think they were already the most fun team to watch in the sport. Now they might be the most dangerous. Um, they're not going to catch the Dodgers in the NL West unless something really crazy happens. But guess what? In a season like this, they don't have to catch the Dodgers. If they win their best of three first round, guess who they play in the next round? It would be the Dodgers right now. So they don't have to beat the Dodgers over 60 games. Uh, if they play in the division series, they only have to beat them over five games. Uh, I know I'd watch that series like every pitch. <laughs> okay, so thanks to the Padres for making this deadline so much more fun than any of us expected it would be. All right, enough of what we think, Doug. Let's talk about the deadline with a guy who actually knows what it's like to live through that insanity from the inside. It's Blue Jays president, Mark Shapiro. And Mark, welcome to Starkville. Congratulations, my friend, on surviving another deadline. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's an, I guess we can say it's an unprecedented one since we're throwing that word around before everything we're going through right now. <laughs> uh, that, that's every day, everything, right? Yeah. Just, you know, nobody listening to this has ever been through a, a trade deadline on your end. Could you just describe the insanity of deadline day? For somebody like you? Wow. I mean, now having sat through 29 of them in different forms or fashions <laughs> in my life, um, everyone's a little bit different. Um, but I mean, listen, deadlines have a way of impacting human behavior, right? Like when you get up towards, you tend to procrastinate and wait, whether it's cramming for an exam, whether it's turning in a, a work product that, that's due. Um, we all tend to wait until a deadline is upon us before we act. And in a case like this year, because uh, so little information is driving, you know, such big decisions uh, and the circumstances around, you know, making those decisions are so different. Like no one really knows how to value a subset of only 25 to 30 games remaining. And, you know, is it, does it mean any less to be in the playoffs this year? Do you, are you discounting the, the, the value of those things? And so, um, I think once we got into the final kind of machinations of the of the, the conversations, it felt relatively normal, um, but it was slow to evolve, slow to develop, slower than normal, I think. And uh, and I think all of us kind of wondered, you know, what are we doing, you know, this year? It, it, was, <laughs> it was it was less the information guiding decisions was less clear than in past years. Boy, no doubt. And yet, hey, more happened than I expected. Uh, so let's, let's talk about what's your team at the deadline because you and Ross Atkins were busy. Uh, you traded for three starting pitchers, right? Tyron, Taiwan Walker, yeah. Robbie Ray, 
and Ross Stripling right at the last minute, plus Jonathan VR, plus Daniel Vogelback. But let's talk about the pitching first because it's hard to recall a team trading for three starters at one trade deadline. Uh, I know Ross Stripling has experience in the pen too, but what was the thought process behind these three pitchers? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the first thought was just that we had had level of injuries with Nate Pearson and Matt Shoemaker and, um, and in our pen as well, that we just felt like um, we had played extremely well uh, in order to sustain the level that we were playing at. Um, we needed to reinforce our team, um, knowing that the biggest trades we're probably going to make are getting Bo Bichette, Ken Giles, and Nate Pearson back, you know, in the next week to two weeks. Like, those will be the impact trades we make because those guys are, you know, Bo Bichette is quickly becoming one of the better middle-of-the-diamond players in the league and is certainly our, you know, maybe our best all-around player. So uh, we needed to kind of bridge the gap uh, in addition Starting pitching, I think anytime there's an opportunity to bring in talent, starting pitching is the one area that I feel I'd always like to stay out of free agency, if at all possible. So when you have a market out there, you want to look to acquire, um, if you can, if you line up on prices and line up on uh, line up on kind of the acquisition. So uh, two, two of those three are short-term, they're just rentals for this year. Um, but in Ross Stripling, we had a guy we had two more years of control with that we felt was certainly below the premium level of the market, which a lot of which didn't happen. You know, you know Lance Lamb and the Musgroves and guys like that, but not that far below some of those guys. Uh, and oh. a guy that, you know, we, we traded a, a player or two that we really like. Uh, we didn't trade in our top 15 of our system. That That is a credit to our baseball operations staff having built up a depth of our system over the last few years where we didn't have to give up our elite young talent. Um, I'm always curious about this. How many seconds before the deadline did you get the Ross Stripling deal done? <laughs> it was seconds. Seconds? It really? It was seconds. That one was seconds, yeah. Uh, the other ones were, I think, one – Robbie Ray was probably like an hour and a half before uh, VR was maybe 40 minutes before, but we had been talking oh, wow. about, you know, talking on VR for a while. Um, and then Stripling just kind of took on momentum that morning. Uh, we had obviously been talking, Ross had been talking to Andrew Friedman throughout the deadline, but took on momentum that morning. We talked about a couple different variations of the deal with other players in. But the exact mix of players, because, uh, you know, the player we named later portion of the deal, it's going to give them some time to look at some guys. We were going back and forth on those names uh, for a while. Incredible. Uh, and, and I, I just wanted to ask about Jonathan VR real quick. Uh, I didn't know you guys were allowed to play anybody in your infield who's not the son of a big leaguer. So how, did, so how does he fit? <laughs> so he fits uh, extremely well for us, especially while Bo's out. You know, like right now we've been playing – Joe Panic, who hasn't played shortstop in years yeah. uh, at shortstop. Um, this will give us the ability to put someone who's a more natural shortstop. The switch hitting ability, you know, also gives us a compliment. So when we want to get another left-handed bat into the outfield, um, you know, we could play him at second base when Bo's back and put Kevin, who's a pretty good outfielder, in the outfield because our outfield's all right-handed. Our starting outfield's all right-handed with Guriel, Gritchick, and Hernandez. So, um, you know, he, he can steal a base, obviously. He's leading the league in stolen bases. He can pinch run. 
Uh, if he shifts to more of a complementary role once Bo's healthy again, you know, he's certainly a, a player that can play a very valuable role as an extra guy. But, you know, I think could also protect Travis Shaw a little bit at third base, um, you know, against certain left-handed pitchers. So there's a lot of flexibility and versatility that he could provide, um, you know, which could help us at, at multiple positions. Yeah, and, and Mark, you mentioned about just the fact that players are – planning on getting healthy, right? So how are you going to handle the fact that, I mean, I was reading the article on the Blue Jays, people coming back, and, and, and there was a, a whole roster. So how do you see it playing out with so many players who are key players coming back and trying to maneuver the roster for setting up for the postseason? Yeah, it, it's a good question, Doug. I think in, the, in kind of the evolution of my career when I was a young GM, that's a question that would have kept me lying awake at night and I would have been trying to figure out as I've gotten older with less hair and grayer hair. Um, you know, I tend to realize that, you know, it is important to be thoughtful about what could happen. Uh, but the reality of all those players coming back, uh, you know, right on schedule with no setbacks and nobody else getting hurt. And, you know, I think if we plan too much with consideration for the guys that were coming back, then when they ultimately did come back, we might no longer be in a pennant race. And, um, you know, there's some part of me and, and Ross and our baseball operations staff that was saying, listen, we've been playing extremely well. We may have been playing better than we actually are since Bo went down, you know, because uh, our best player went down. And we, so what can we do to offset the reality that we're probably going to regress a little bit? Um, and that was adding those players, you know, until the other players come back and, uh, I guess what I'd tell you is we'll figure that out. That'll be a good problem to have. Um, and it would probably involve, you know, some young guys who have pitched uh, extremely well, you know, having to either reduce their roles or get sent out. But that's, you know, that's where you want to be. When you're a championship level team, you're having to make tough decisions on very good players. And I've been through that with the Indians all the way through the mid nineties uh, and back again, when we were very good in the two thousands and, you know, when you're where you want to be as kind of a sustainable championship team, there are going to be very good players that, um, you know, have to either be extremely patient or, or have to wait a while to become big leaders. And that's uh, that, that's kind of what you want to do. You, you, you know, you mentioned that three of these guys are rentals. So let me ask you this. If 16 teams were not making the postseason this year, would your team have done what it did? I, I'm not a big believer in hypotheticals but no but no i mean it's it's safe to say like the the circumstance and situation you knowing where we were in playoff probability um we would probably not we, i think we still would have made an effort to get better we certainly would have done the raw stripling deal regardless um had we have done all the rentals i think we still would have said we've got a chance to get in and we still want to continue to push because uh, we're not that far behind the Yankees right now. And so we still would have tried to push and, and acquired a guy or two. Will we have been quite as aggressive? Um, it's possible, maybe not, if it was a traditional playoff you know, scenario this year, Jason. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, it, it definitely played into it, the fact there's extra playoff spots and we're right there right now. If we were to end the day, we're in it. And the percentages are pretty good in our favor. So to reinforce yeah. that, that ability and to reinforce the team that we would have if we get in, you know, we're both really important. Yeah. So, so, so I, this was something I thought about the whole deadline day. Is this an argument for an expanded postseason beyond this year? Um, you know, I understand all the reasons 
that we're doing what we're doing this year. Yeah. I have to be convinced that 16 teams is a good idea beyond this year. Yeah, so I'm a, I I am would want to take more time to study it. I don't think this is the year. I think I don't think ever taking one year should be the subset of information you make that decision on. But if you were to model uh, and look at uh, you know the game over the last what would have happened over the last 50 years had we had not maybe just 20 that's like they could take a smaller more relevant like over the last 20 years had there been eight teams in the playoffs I think there's only one time or that a sub 500 team would have been in and I do think that the number of teams that are not playing meaningful baseball in August and September is bad for the game I think it's that is bad for the game so you know it's very general to kind of say this but i think having more fan bases engaged having more teams with the potential to play for something you know throughout august and september is generally good for the game um should we judge what happens activity at at one trade deadline to make that decision no (laughs) should we judge a truncated season with 60 games no uh but you know do i think that there are uh, potentially positive uh, outcomes of expanding the playoffs, even though I do think we have to be extremely careful not to dilute, you know, the meaning of what it means to get in. Yes. Um, so I, I go back to kind of the, the ideas that were being thrown out uh, to the competition committee, which I sit on in, in some other circles. Um, you know, I like the idea of the, you know, the best record getting a buy. I like the idea of some other teams getting a chance to pick who they play against. I think that's could be intrigue, could be, but more than anything, um, I like us being open-minded to some change in the game and some differences that, that potentially could engage people that might not otherwise engage. And I think that um, I'm, a, I'm a traditionalist on a lot of things in the game, uh, but I think that I'm also a believer that in order for the game to grow, we need to be open-minded about things that in the past we've been very resistant to change on. I think if you look at the NFL, the NHL, the NBA, they change rules all the time. And it's not so sacred that it's it's offensive to the people who either play uh, or or run those games. They view it as a necessity to adapt their game, you know, to their fans. That's who you know ultimately supports all of us, including you guys. You know, so um, I think we just need to be open. I just think we need to be open minded. I do think expanded playoffs, much like I think the tenth inning rule has largely been a success this year, as I've watched it, and we have been on the wrong side of that the majority of the time, but I think it's added strategy. It's, it's resulted in exactly what we wanted to result in, you know, which is most of these games are ending in the 10th inning and we're not having to, what we're not. And we already are in a very tough position with our pitching this year. Can you imagine if those games were going 13, 14, 15 innings, what that would have done? Yeah. You, you know, I agree with you on the, uh, the need to change, right? I would say this all the time. Nobody ever watches an NBA game and says, wait, that's not the game that George Mike can play. <laughs> right. Like they don't care. It's only baseball that's held to that standard. I guess what I, what I would worry about is uh, like the Dodgers going like 42 and 18 and then losing in the, in a best of three first round. No, that's, that's a concern. Sub 500 team, right? Yeah. That's a concern. That's where I think the, ability for the Dodgers to pick who they play against and to get all three of those games. I think this year is not going to be the right year of value because I, there's, you know, as you know, there's a real home field advantage that exists in baseball. It's meaningful. So the ability to have to, for them to play all three and the Dodgers, by the way, would get a buy in the first round, you know, the, the team, the best record would get a buy under the original structure we were looking right. at. 
So the not the second best record. So you know that team would not get by, uh, but would get to pick who they play against. Then we get all three of those games at their at their home, and which is meaningful. I'm sure, baseball. the traveling secretary loves that. You know, oh yeah, let, where are we going? I don't know. We'll find <laughs> out. <laughs> Uh, so, <laughs> those are the, those are the guys we're not considering not a decision. Yeah. Watch right. the selection show. So, so you you know you mentioned these types of changes. I, I'm curious how quickly and how difficult was it to pivot once you knew that the playoffs were expanded. I mean, but we did an entire pre-show on on Starkville based on our predictions off the wild card. And then it was like, what was it, like days later, it's like, oh, there's 16 teams. So how, how hard was it with just adapting right. your strategy on how you manage that with, with new information such as, as large as that? Yeah. Oh, it was difficult just because there's no, there was nothing else to work off of in the past, you know? So, um, but I, I think in the end, like we, we, as we were talking, we kind of simplified it. Like, hey, we had been working hard to kind of retool the organization, to build up the base of talent, to develop our, ma our major league core and identify who they were to, to transition and develop those players and then to create the expectation to win and then to build a sustainable championship foundation. And here is an opportunity, regardless of the reasons for that opportunity, it's an opportunity to kind of push, this, push the timing of that. You know, to get in the playoffs now. And it's still the playoffs, by the way. Winning a game is still winning a game. Closing a game still feels like closing a game. So, you know, I would say, like, there are bizarre things when you watch games live this year. If you're in the stadium and you're watching a game live. On TV, to me, I sometimes forget. And it feels like relatively normal to me sometimes. But when you're watching it live, there are some, there are some things that kind of are strange, you know, when you're, when you're kind of going through it. But... Like when we have a walk-off win, it still feels like a walk-off win. You know, when you're trying to get that last out, dang, it still feels hard to win a major league game. You know, like getting those last three outs still feels just as hard. So getting into the postseason is still meaningful. And I would say, is it, does it have an asterisk? Is it less meaningful for us where we are as a young team looking to take the next step and position ourselves to be there for the next four, five, six, seven years? you know, led by a group of really young, talented players. Um, this has been really a really good experience for us, and I think it's a big part of us taking the next step. That's why we pushed the envelope to to gain the postseason experience this year. And was it was it a big change to move off of a model that says a season is 162 games? I mean, I always think of the nightmare of a small sample size. We've been kind of indoctrinated into this nightmare, and yet you're living it. Uh, how... How much was the shift in analytics to, uh, you know, to address that change? Yeah, well, the analytics are just less predictive. They're less relevant and they can't guide decisions to the level that you normally guide a decision. So, um, you know, you're I think we, we just started with the premise that, you know, we weren't the only ones saying it like it's it's July 31st and we're all kind of, you know, we're all tied for first place and, you know, and, and here we go or whatever. It's August 1st and we're all, it's all, and we're all August 15th and we're all tied for, tied for first place. You know, how would we handle that? You know, how, how would we kind of, um, and then you objectively still look at your level of talent, what you expect from your players, but yeah, you're making quicker decisions. You're recognizing that you are kind of riding a little bit more of momentum. That's why I said like, over the past 12 days, we played better than we are, you know, but that's really valuable in a shortened season. So that's why we doubled down and went out and got four players, 
you know, because, okay, like we're going to regress a little bit probably, but now we add these guys back in, you know, and we add the players coming back from injury, that's going to offset that regression and then hopefully end then some and give us a chance to really do some meaningful things for our development, you know, and, and win by the way, because when you get down to it, you still, you still want to win every day. You know, the losses still stink. You know, they still, they still like zap you regardless of what, what the dynamic is or how many people are in the stands. Hey, you mentioned the extra inning rule. and I know you've had plenty of experience with that. You've had, what, nine of these extra inning games? Nine, nine? extra inning games. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, I, you know, I don't, I'd like to know kind of what your reaction is to all these different rules that we've been experimenting with. Um, I mean, I, I like the extra inning rule, personally. Uh, does, do you think that one sticks around? Do you think any of them stick around? Um, I think the, the – so I would say this. On the extra inning rule, um, the unanimous sentiment from farm directors, having done that the last few years in the minor leagues at different levels and ultimately at every level, was overwhelmingly supportive and positive. The overwhelming uh, feedback from minor league managers was overwhelmingly positive. Um, certainly anyone like me who has a son that's played youth baseball and seen that role anyway kind of happened. It, like, it, felt, it felt like it was a good thing to me. You know, when I was watching my son's games, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense, you know. Um, so I, I think that one makes sense for a lot of reasons. The most important reason is, is player health. Like, I'm just not sure what happens to a game. And I've heard Joe Torrey talking about this in our meetings. Like, what happens to a game? And, Doug, you know that. Like, when you get later in those games, guys' approach, approaches change. A lot of guys looking to end that game on one swing, you know, and, like, despite being smart enough to understand that, like, we got to piece together hits and it's not about one swing, it just deteriorates, and then the game ends up, you're in the 13, 14, 15 inning. No one benefits, by the way. You're not, you're not making more money as a, as a team. No one's really watching those games. The players are gaining a, a level of fatigue. And ultimately, sometimes as a pitching staff, the lag effect is both injuries and weeks or a month to come, to come back from a game like that. So I think this mitigates that risk and creates – it has created some strategy. It's been, it's been interesting to watch how guys have defended – it's been interesting to watch. I watched a, you know, a, uh, a two batter inning, you know, which you'll, I've never seen in my life. Yesterday with a double play, you know, leadoff, uh, you know, favorite thing. Yeah, the, the, the two <laughs> up, three down inning. Two up, three down <laughs> inning. Yeah. So the fly out to, Te to Teoscar Hernandez and throws the guy out, throws Williams out of the plate. You know, that's it. So there's been two of these, and neither one's been on a ground ball double play. Yeah. <laughs> I think you were involved right, in both of them. So it's hard to have that. I guess you, that could happen, but yeah, because a yeah. walk could happen. But I, I yeah, know. it was, uh, you know, I'm seeing things I've never seen before, which is, <laughs> which is kind of great, you know. <laughs> it's good for my business, I'll tell you that. <laughs> what, what about universal DH? Well, do you think that one sticks um, around? Or is that I, hard so to say? I, I would say I'm in favor of universal, period, whether it's DH or pitchers, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, weigh in. I just think the two sets of rules thing no longer makes sense with interleague play. Um, I think uh, two sets of rules is uh, uh, a bad idea for pitcher health. I've seen too many pitchers break fingers, too many pitchers, you know, like, it's just not, you know, it's not a good idea. I think if everybody was doing it, uh, we'd have a better chance, you know, I think it's just a better idea. 
the American League and National League with the level with the amount of interleague play we've got at this point, you know, having two sets of rules make does not make sense to me. That's the bottom line. But what if you got rid of interleague and then went back to the surprise in the in the World Series? <laughs> <laughs> I'm on board with that, actually. You know, but I, I don't know if that's, you know, I think it, there are probably, um, <laughs> you know, the dirty secret, right? Like the, the largest market teams are such big drivers, you know, of our game and our business. Uh, and there are some real rivalries in the largest markets um, that are interleague in, in meaning and impact that probably we should maintain, you know, whether it's Mets, Yankees or, you know, Cubs, White Sox, whatever those are, um, you know, our, our natural rival, I think, is the Phillies <laughs> or something or, you know, or the Braves. Some years. So, what's Joe that? Carter. The Braves? Some years, right? Yeah. yeah. So, like, I don't, <laughs> yeah, so I don't know, uh, you know, it doesn't, it obviously doesn't exist for us here, you know, um, but, uh, you know, I think, I, I think it's probably going to stick around, Doug, just because. The, bring, ba- bring back the Expos. Less. That solves the problem right there. <laughs> there you go. That might happen. They might be the uh, Montreal oh, Rays. Well, here we go. That's news. news. <laughs> we'll see. Mark, when you and I see each other, we always like to talk about the the pace of action in baseball. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm sure you're aware that despite some of these rules – the time of game per nine innings this year is the longest ever. Um, nothing really <laughs> has has changed. We had 400 more strikeouts than hits in August. So yeah. what has to happen for this sport to have better rhythm and more great athletes running around the bases instead of trotting around the bases or swinging and missing? Well, I'm not surprised. I, mean, I don't think we've done anything. You know, What we've done has been – largely you know the the smaller uh symbolic changes more than the meaningful changes uh, that could change the action of the game you've ultimately got to figure out a way to incent balls to be put in play more frequently um you can do that through a variety of ways the strike zone some manipulation of the strike zone uh or changing composition of the ball to me, probably represent the two most realistic slash least offensive ways to do it. Um, I say that because I think things that are more radical in nature will probably meet greater resistance. I think if you change the composition of the ball that made it, that counteracted some of the uh, swing development. And I don't know, Doug, whether you, you know, you're, I'm, you're, I'm sure you're seeing all the, the way that we're developing hitters are developing themselves now and the, the hitting gurus are developing and the way we're talking, thinking about launch angles. And I mean, the nature of the way guys are swinging is creating, you know, more swing and miss that combined with the increase in velocity. Um, you know, yes, you've got more homers, but you certainly, you know, the three probably the three true outcomes are kind of, driving the game right now and that is not action uh, only one of those creates action by the way and the other ones create long and they all create long at bats um you know without a lot of action and three to four minutes between you know a ball and play which is good for no one you know going four minutes between a ball being put in play um it's not necessarily about scoring for me um as, as you and i have talked about jason i mean it's it's more about like just trying to create that feeling like 
like my first mentor, John Hart, used to always say, like, you want those guys that you're afraid to go to the concession stand, you know, like you're, <laughs> you're going to miss something, right? You're going to miss something. Yeah. So I think we need to create a game where people feel like they don't want to go to the concession stand and separate between innings because they're going to miss something. And right now, you know, you've got some nice long pauses to be able to do whatever you want, which is probably not, probably not good. Certainly not good for, uh, you know, my kids' generations, the 15, 14, 16-year-olds that are, you know, sitting there saying, okay, I, I'm not used to waiting four minutes between, you know, events. Well, you know, speaking of the timeline, so you have Bo Bichette. Now, I played against Dante Bichette. I'm sure you saw. Yeah. What, what's the scouting report between those two players from those two completely different eras? The scouting report uh, comparing them to comparing them as two players. <laughs> wow, I haven't I haven't actually thought of you know Dante's working with us right now and he's been unbelievable you know um, with our hitters Doug like I don't know if you've ever talked hitting with him but he largely is focused on approach not on swing mechanics. We've got uh, you know a hitting coach who's more of a mechanical approach and they work extremely well together. His routines and the way that he's worked with Bo and how constructively they work together. I think what makes Dante um, pretty special is that he's not trying to tell Bo how he should do it. Bo's swing to me, and I'm trying to picture Dante. Obviously, I was in the game when Dante was playing. My dad was Dante's agent, believe it or not. That's kind of funny, you know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think about Dante's swing, and it was more of a power, you know, a power type swing. And Bo swing, when I think about one word that kind of comes to mind when I watch Bo hit, it's just athleticism. You know, I don't know how much you kind of watch the swing, but man, it is a twitchy, explosive, hip generated. It's like his hips are so incredibly athletic and so quick. And, you know, he's just got an athletic swing. He was a big tennis player when he was young. And I can see tennis in his, like, in the way he swings, you know, it's obviously pretty incredible because he goes from an extremely aggressive leg kick to no legs, no leg, no leg, no leg kick at all, two strikes. Like he spreads out and just literally doesn't strive with two strikes, which is amazing. But his hips are still active, you know, like that's the amazing thing. So uh, they're very different, I think. Uh, I'm sure there are some things they are doing the same and I haven't broken them down side by side, um, but they're very different physically too. I mean, Dante's a much bigger guy. Uh, Bo is definitely a faster guy and more athletic and center of the diamond, you know, different from a corner guy. Yeah, well, that's your homework. That's your homework. So. Yeah, for good enough. <laughs> <laughs> you can come back to me. <laughs> hey, if we're going to talk about fathers and sons on your team, then we, we've got to mention you're one of those sons. Uh, your dad, Ron Shapiro, one of the best and most beloved and respected agents of his time. And now you, you're quote unquote are on the other side. But – how did having a dad who worked in baseball shape your career and the way that you do your job, Mark? Well, in the simplest in, in the simplest of terms, I've always approached the game from the perspective that I love players, you know. And so whether and my foundation and the thing I gravitate towards today, as always, is player development because player development, you're never, the business side never factors in. You're only thinking about how can I help this player be the best he can possibly be. And I gravitate towards those people. Ross Atkins, our GM, was a player when I was a farm director in our system. Um, you know, he's always struck me as a guy that, you know, when we're 
sitting around privately. And I wish players could always hear those conversations. Our only conversations as an organization are how can we help guys? And always to want to have, I've always wanted to have the players that you're pulling for, you know, as people, as well as players. And it's like to see Teoscar Hernandez do what he's doing this year and to know what kind of person he is, what kind of human being he is, what kind of teammate he is, what kind of father he is, you know, like that's the greatest thing ever, right? Like it's not just, yeah, like we were right trading for him. Yes, he's helping us win because he's got 12 homers. It's this guy's a great person, a hard worker. He's done everything he can possibly do, and he's an incredible teammate. And by the way, he's got the power to make all of our players better if he's successful on the field because it's going to give him a platform to lead. My dad, you know, represented not just good players, but a lot of incredible people, some of whom are not the best players. Um, and to learn from them about professionalism, teammate, you know, and just to kind of always default towards, you know, thinking about making sure those guys know that we're pulling for them, you know, like making sure that they know that, yeah, it's not about like front office player. Like we have the same goal 99% of the time. That's the worst articulated <laughs> truth in baseball. There's like 2% of the time that we're at out. That's contract time. The rest of the time, we want the player to play as, and do as well as he can humanly do. And, you know, and that, that's exactly what the club wants and what the player wants, right? So the more we can make sure we pull back to that and communicate that and demonstrate that in the way we run an organization, I think, Jason, that comes from, you know, my dad. That comes from, you know, growing up around Eddie Murray, Cal Ripken Jr., Curry Puckett, um, you know, those guys, as well as guys that people might not have heard of, like Mike Bodiger, who was living on the pullout couch, you know, in our family when we got called to the big leagues in 83. He was a 26-year-old rookie and couldn't afford any place else. And I was talking about the playoff games with him as he was waking wow. up on the couch in the morning. You know? So, you know, like to, to, learn, to learn about the game from those guys after having been the kid just hanging over the rail trying to get Reggie Jackson's autograph as a fan first 13 years of my life. And then all of a sudden those guys were over for dinner um, was incredible. And I just, I think it gave me such an appreciation for players, you know, and how hard the game is to play and making sure that I never stopped, you know, wanting those guys to do well. I didn't want to ever be that front office guy rooting against a player, you know, or like making it sound easy because man, it's not easy, you know? So, and Mark, is that where you still have the joy and passion for the game? Uh, you think about being in the front office and sometimes those numbers, right? You're, you're weighing depreciation. You're looking at assets. You talk yeah. about regression. I mean, as a fan, it must be tough, right? It's like you want to just like wear your hat and you're eight years old. You want to don't want to realize that they're regressing or they're supposed to yeah. regress. So how do you keep that, that joy front and center for the game? Yeah, that's, that's, Doug, that's an incredible question, man. Um, I would say like seven to 10 every night or whenever the games get played for those three hours, it's a little easier. Like when you're watching the game, uh, when it comes to making decisions, man, that it, it is hard, right? Like, cause you know, you are impacted by your emotions and you are impacted by how much you love a player. And I can think back to some of the toughest decisions I've ever had to make um, on the players I've cared about the most. Cause in Cleveland, we had to make tough, just like they just had to make one. We had to make tough decisions all the time based upon the business realities of that market, you know, which meant players that have been the most meaningful to me in my career, like a Victor Martinez and CC Sabathia, like we had to trade those guys. Where if you're a big market, you're not trading those guys. It's not saying you don't like them. 
It's just the business reality. So I guess what I would say is I've always tried to surround myself with people who are more objectively focused on the game and that could counter my maybe more emotional, um, exuberant and, uh, um, you know, passionate kind of side. And I always still felt like it was important to have some part of that subjective feeling that you're betting on human beings and people factor in but that you needed people around you who put a framework in place that kind of challenged your bias because, you know, the one thing I've learned, and I do think it's important to be a learner and keep getting better no matter how old you are, is that a lot of the decisions that we make that are poor are impacted by bias, you know, recency bias, contextual bias, whatever it is. Um, and so I just always want to make sure I'm challenging my own biases. And I'm, 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 I want to ultimately if I have an opinion, a gut-based opinion, I'm looking to either reinforce that gut with good objective information or challenge it, you know, and make sure I'm not making a bad decision. But it doesn't seem to interfere with still loving the game and still wanting to watch the game and enjoying that aspect and still being at all of what players can do. All right. I know we got to start winding this down. I, Mark, I want, I want you to look into the future for me. Um, the postseason, do we play it in a bubble? Do we get through the postseason? Next year, are you back in Buffalo? Are yeah. there fans in the stands around ballparks in North America? What do you see when you look into your crystal ball? Well, the one thing, I, if I could answer that question, there would be far more important <laughs> jobs for me to be doing than the one I'm doing. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure someone will pull me into far more important conversations than this one. <laughs> this, I thought this one mattered. Not the downplay start bill at all, but I got a feeling I'd be on, I'd be on, I'd be on a much bigger platform than this one if I can But I would say this: that uh, the one thing I have learned um, when we left March 14th, Jason, we left the last game, and, and we were wheels up on March 16th. You know, with the Toronto staff, and we were kind of sequestered and quarantined here in Toronto, which is Toronto still kind of shut down. You know, I was in my mind, I was like, hey, man, we're going to be back like in June. We're going to like, well, this is going to be over. We're going to be playing baseball in June. And then, you know, May rolled around and we weren't even, you know, playing yet. And I was like, whoa, this is going to be much longer. And then we're scrambling to find a place to play, you know, and we're going through three different op situations and we return to play. And I'm thinking, well, when my kids get back to school, school will start normally and then school's not normal. And. Yeah, so I guess what I'm saying is, as, as we've approached each decision, now we're planning for next year and thinking about it. And we don't have any certainty, you know, what we're, as we're planning. Like, we're looking at different scenarios. Um, my sense is, with no inside information, but just kind of studying how different people from different businesses are planning and taking the information that's out there, is that there will be a time during next season – I'm not saying at the start, um, but maybe the middle of next season where things return to some sense of normalcy, but still have a lag effect of what we've experienced as a society and a culture. But I think in general, we're looking at, you know, a two to three year build out of, you know, out of the circumstances that we've encountered, that it's going to take time, that live entertainment and sports, you know, sh shifting to my business hat because I operate the business side as well live entertainments and sports are going to be the most impacted and the slowest to recover um, for a long period of time. But I hopefully what, the, what we're doing on the field will have more of a sense of normalcy by the middle of next year. Boy, that would be great. Um, 
Look, Mark, I could talk to you all day, but I know you have more important things to do than to talk to us all day. <laughs> so, listen, yeah, I've got to go determine when, when we're going to get back to normal next year and share yes, that. Yes, well, get that going, man. Uh, look, uh, thank you. I'm uh, pretty sure you're the first president ever to visit us here at Starkville oh, anything. Because those titles <laughs> so, are so uh, meaningful. So. How about, that seems like an honor to me. I don't know. <laughs> it's an honor for me to be on with you guys, man. I've always... Always admired Doug. He knows that and had a chance to interact with him a little bit when he played and in, in his post-playing, early in his post-playing career. I'm excited. And Jason, you're you're a Hall of Famer, man. <laughs> uh, it's, it's amazing how many people throw that out there and say, wait, what? <laughs> but thank you, man. Hey, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, hope our paths cross somewhere in yeah, some ballpark exactly. someplace let's hope it's let's hope it's in Clearwater and <laughs> Eden uh, in the spring man that would be, that'd that'd be, be great that thing. would be awesome yeah thank you so right, much thanks Mark take care of yourself. okay thank you guys hey Starkville Evil Mayor Tim here we're going to be back with trivia after this short break all right Doug it's time for one of our favorite parts of every podcast it's listener trivia it's our way of involving you our favorite listeners in this show once again this week we are literally involving you uh, now i'm not even sure anymore why we thought this was a good idea but this year we decided it'd be fun to have our listeners join us on the show and embarrass us with their trivia question live just to recap, that's been a lot of fun for the listeners. It's turning out to be not that much fun for me and Doug. Uh, we're into week nine of this. So, Doug, why don't you review how we're doing with these live questions over the first eight weeks? Well, in uh, 1997, the Chicago Cubs, the team I was on, we started off 0-14. And, 14, and um, we are now 0-8. So I think that's a positive because we have six more Trivia questions before we tie the Chicago Cubs of 1997. So I'm yeah. feeling very optimistic that um, yeah. we're going to get there. We're going to stop. We're going to stop the streak. We're going to stop the oh, streak. Good. Yeah. good to hear. Um, yeah, just in case you didn't follow Doug there. It's 2020. It's not 1997. And it's listeners eight. Your resident Starkville baseball genius is still at zero. Yep. Um, I, I really never aspired to reenact anything accomplished by the 1997 Phillies. So, Doug. Oh, no, that was the Cubs. That was the Cubs. So, oh, the 1997 Cubs were not real good either. That's a good point. Yeah, this was, we started the year 14 in a row of defeat. Yeah, yeah it wasn't good. I blame Glanville. Um, Doug, we need to get our act together and yep. get one of these right. Uh, this week would be a fine time. So, let's do that. What do you say? All right. Let's do it. Let's knock it out. Yeah, on that note, it's time to welcome in this week's lucky guest trivia contestant. It's Jesse Hannigan. Jesse, welcome to Starkville. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. We are happy to have you. Uh, Jesse, judging from your Twitter feed, I have a feeling you're a Philadelphian like me. Is that accurate? That is accurate. I brought my ball cap here just for the occasion. Oh, very nice, very nice. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, on Zoom, we can see that Jesse has a Phillies cap on now. Um, all right, all we ask is just don't boo us, all right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not one of those Promise, fans. don't you? Uh, I, I okay, promise, good. I promise. <laughs> all right, how, how, how did you come up with this question? Um, I think it's just the timing of it all. I think with Jackie Robinson Day, um, just 
it just happened. And so when uh, you, Jason, posted the, the, the prompt to the fans on Twitter <laughs> to uh, come up with a good trivia question, uh, that's where my mind went. Very good. Very good. Um, all right. On that note, here is your chance to attempt to humiliate us in front of the world. <laughs> Jesse, what's your question? Um, so we know that Mariano Rivera was the last baseball player to wear the number 42. Who was the second to last player? All right, good one. Now, I'm not sure if we'll get this right or wrong, but let me say I do appreciate your asking it. I was actually rooting for somebody to ask a Jackie Robinson question this week because uh, one of the key elements to having us pick your question is having it be relevant to something that's going on right now. Uh, everybody taking notes out there on that? Good. You should. <laughs> Jesse obviously was. All right, so now we got to figure out the answer. Um, the first name that popped into my head was Mo Vaughn. I know he wore 42. Just something that tells me that's the answer. But, you know, because I thought I had this right before, of course, I started second-guessing myself. And so, I, Doug, I started thinking about other guys who I knew wore 42 in the years before they retired it. Um, Steve Avery wore it for the Braves, but I don't think he played later than Mo Vaughn. Jose Lima wore it everywhere. Very similar era. Butch Husky, I'm really tempted by him. Definitely wore it for the Mets. Uh, that reliever Michael Jackson uh, for a bunch of teams. But for some reason, I feel like it's Mo Vaughn. So, Doug, that's my guess. Mo Vaughn, what do you think? Yeah, that's a good guess. And because um, I'm thinking, yeah, because Avery and I played against Avery and he was sort of at the end. And it seemed like Mo Vaughn was at the Mets and kind of hung in there. Uh, yeah, my first thought was actually Butch Husky. That's who came to mind. Uh, yeah, but yeah, when you said, when you said Jose Lima, man, that was a that's a good one. Right. That was that was a that was the one that just you know I, like I said I, ignorance is bliss. I had no idea. And then he said, "Yeah, that's right." Was a, and I face and I faced these guys, Lima and Jackson. And I'm trying to think. Ah, oh, Butch Husky, man. All right. Well, yeah, usually we try to stack the deck because we have five guesses, but we only have one. We each. cheat, Jesse. We just cheat. And it hasn't worked. So, all right, I. Man. All right, I'll say Butch Husky. I just... I, I, I like that guess. Um, you know, Jesse, this was like the third week in a row when I first saw the question. I was sure we'd get it right. But now I'm worried. So there's I want to give you a chance to make us happy. There's always is a there curveball. any chance? Right. There always is. But I, I think I like our chances. Is there any chance it's Mo Vaughn or Butch Husky? The answer is Mo Vaughn. Yeah. Oh, no, we did it. We did it. Oh, my Ooh. God. Thank God. <laughs> Bullock used to do a dance when he'd is get my a, trivia questions. I need, right like, a up. Zoom I'm, dance or something. Yes. Yeah, we'll have, to, we'll, we'll have to work on that in the future. Look, I knew we'd get it right one of these weeks. Oh, wow. It's amazing. I mean, Lima uh, was and, making me nervous, though, like because he seemed yeah. like he played a while. You, you know, when you play too many of these uh, – Who's the greatest number? Who's the greatest player ever to wear number X with Tim Kirkshen games? Oh yeah, you know you you have these names in your head. So <laughs> anyway, we did it, and uh, the the best part is 
This is a really cool question for the times we live in. So I am especially happy that we got, <laughs> got this, this one right. One right. <laughs> All right. So Jesse, great question and perfect for this week. Um, now, as you know, if you listen regularly, whether we get the question right or wrong, we bring in the mayor of Starkville, Mayor Tim, to work his magic and play some cool moment that our human trivia answer gave us back in the day. So, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Tim, what do you have for us this week? You know, guys, normally you pick a question that has like five different answers and you have 10 chances. (laughs) But I think maybe the the approach this time was the way to go. There's one answer, give it two shots, and you got it. So good stuff, good question, and good answer. Um, So we're going to go back to June 26, 2002, towards the end of Movon's career. He, uh, He last played actually the next season, May 2nd, 2003. But this was at Shea Stadium for the Mets. One of the longest home runs ever for Movon. 0-1 delivery to him and a towering shot way back in right field. Everybody's just watching. Oh, that hit three quarters of the way up on that scoreboard. Movon with a mountain of a shot. 505 feet, according to however they kept track of that stuff pre-Statcast. Which was better, the home run or the Gary Thorne call of it? (laughs) That was tremendous, huh? Uh, wow. Good good soundbite. Great question. Jesse, we loved your question. Thanks for asking it. And thanks for joining us here in Starkville. Good work. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Remember, next week, this could be you asking us a question and enjoying the spectacle of having us start a brand new trivia losing streak. <laughs> we will tell you how to do that a little later in the podcast. <laughs> But first, one thing we try to do in this segment is use the trivia question to inspire a topic for the show. So, Doug, I think it's easy to determine what we should do this week. Jesse asked us a question about number 42. Let's talk about the meaning of number 42, especially at a time like this. This is a perfect time for you to share your thoughts. I'm just going to sit back and let you go. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Jay, it's, it's, um, there's so many layers to it, just thinking through, uh, even some, someone like, uh, you know, the loss of Chadwick Boseman with Black Panther, uh, actor yeah. who, who portrayed Jackie Robinson in 42. And you think about the times we're in. But, um, you know, for me, Jackie Robinson, you know, he opened the door and, uh, you know, so that many could follow. And I guess in my time, you know, I always had a, a good relationship around, uh, my parents' desires to be interested in this type of history and understanding that, all right, if you're going to be passionate about baseball, we need to know about the pioneers and, and those that came before. Where I see such a great opportunity now for baseball is, you know, we think of Robinson often through his silent strength. You know, he came in in 47. He kind of had this understanding with Branch Rickey about the silence and not fighting back even though his personality had uh, this edge to him that he did. He cared about equity. He cared about equality. And it was obviously extremely difficult. But as he aged in the game and got more footing, and certainly with the things that he was doing off the field, he started to sort of bring on much more of the activist side of of Jackie Robinson, Uh, you know, going from that period where he's, you know, he's a pioneer and inherently changes a culture 
<clears throat> then he started to create more of a dynamic uh, approach behind it. And of course, when he retired, he became the first in many other regards. I mean, chock full of nuts and a columnist, uh, opened a bank. Uh, you know, he often wrote uh, many letters to senators and candidates to try to get the legal and legislative side to work for equality. Uh, testified in court, supported Kurt Flood. Uh, you know, he was seemingly everywhere and so many people were inspired by his pioneering efforts, uh, not to mention Martin Luther King, who I think when he broke in, he was a sophomore in in college. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so the, the legacy of inspiration is so much bigger than baseball. And when you think about, you know, I think of Claire Smith, a uh, colleague at ESPN and an incredible writer, Spink Award winner also, uh, she always talks about black royalty. And you think of the period of time with Jackie Robinson, where he was, you know, he was a pioneer, but the aspect of how he was able to get to that table. And and certainly in the black community, there was limitations on the figures that have enough influence to be at the table and to be able to influence. And so sports, entertainment, clergy, these were sort of arenas where there was so much more possibility. So he couldn't really be silent forever. Uh, he had that type of, uh, of power to make that difference. And so, you know, recognizing that he has this lineage is, uh, is, is so critical. And so when you think forward, uh, the, the time and the opportunity to embrace this other aspect of Jackie Robinson is fitting because he was really dynamically involved. Even to the last speech he gave in Cincinnati, uh, in a, a professional major league park, he said that he was looking for representation in that coach's box and diversity there. Uh, so I, I always think of one and the same of recognizing that, you know, he, he definitely paved the way and it was beyond just baseball. Uh, the first major institution in the United States to, to voluntarily desegregate or integrate was baseball, uh, even before our own military. Uh, so, and, and in closing, I say that one thing that sometimes gets underestimated is most black players in the who you know make it to the major leagues probably integrated somewhere somewhere in their experience along the way they were the first the only and and had to figure out how to chart new territory uh, you think of uh, someone like Dick Allen in Little Rock Arkansas for example and so knowing that that inspiring spirit of being an innovator being a pioneer and really activating us to think about a more inclusive society. Uh, Jackie Robinson is the big circle that you put as, as uh, the person that really had that in the spirit of baseball. So uh, I know we'll keep preserving his legacy and, and let's continue to find ways to make a more perfect union. So well said. That was great, Doug. And uh, you know, one thing that struck me this year was the timing because wasn't the timing of Jackie Robinson Day amazing this year you know it's usually in april the one year it's in august it just happens to coincide with this moment in time in america where the games stopped at least temporarily right because it was more important for us to have a national conversation than it was to play baseball or any sport and this happens like in right at the same time as Jackie Robinson Day rolling around in baseball. And Doug, a few years ago, I had a chance to talk with Sharon Robinson, the daughter of Jackie Robinson. What a great woman. 
And she talked to me about what it's like to sit in a ballpark around people who don't even know who she is and listen to kids who ask their parents, why is that number 42 hanging on the wall? And that question often leads to a conversation. And it's a conversation not about baseball, but about Jackie Robinson and what he did, what he stood for, what he fought for, and how these moments from our history provide lessons that we can all learn from. So, I mean, I don't know how many times we've said this. We need to do better. We need to be better. And that's what number 42 represents. It's so much more than a uniform number. If you're listening, please think about that. The next time you see number 42 hanging on an outfield wall. All right, before we go, we like to spend a few minutes talking about the craziest, the strangest, but the truest stuff that we saw in the last week. Strange but true. Doug, I know what you want to talk about, man. It's something I wrote about in my useless information column that happened last week in a Mets-Marlins game. Uh, So before we turn you loose, uh, we're going to have the great Gary Cohen describe one of the weirdest blown saves ever. Let me set it up. Okay, this is last Wednesday. Bases loaded. Mets hanging onto a one-run lead that Jacob deGrom left them. Big mistake by him. Uh, Brad Brock is on the mound. He just relieved Edwin Diaz, who they had told us had cramped up and had to leave with a two-in-one count. This is so Mets. So here's <laughs> Gary Cohen describing this insanity beautifully on SNY. A walk would force in the tying run. If it were to be a walk, it would be charged to Diaz, and Diaz would be charged with a blown save without even being on the mound, which is really hard to do. Brock trying to avoid that. But he walked him, and this game is tied. So Brock throws two pitches, completes the walk, and that brings in Birdie with the third run of the inning. Diaz gets charged with a blown save. DeGrom will not win on a night when he struck out 14 in seven innings. And the Mets bullpen has blown up. (laughs) I've heard that sentence before. (laughs) Gary Cohen, the best. All right, Doug, your thoughts on what you just heard. Uh, Well, first of all, the sheer joy in Starkville uh, that is always uh, sort of bubbles to the surface whenever we have something that an official scorer pulls his or her hair out. Uh, I think that's something that you have to, you know, that's that's it. And and then I, I and my extra love for this is that you don't know what to categorize. You could actually create a new term, and and that's that's my favorite part. You know, it's like the invisible appearance when you pinch hit, and then before you even come up to home, they pinch hit for the pinch hitter. So you were there, but you weren't there. So that's an yeah. invisible appearance. So um, <laughs> I, I so this is one of those moments where uh, the the blown save. And you're not even on the field, right? You're just like you're in the shower, locker room, you're in the on the training room table, 
and something is credited to you for happening that in, your name is on, you've signed off on it as a proxy apparently, <laughs> but it doesn't have anything to do with you because you didn't throw that pitch. So uh, that, you know, that's just the beauty. I find these things absolutely beautiful and, and, you know, baseball reference. And so I, I'd love you to clue me in because I know there was like a scoring change. They had to kind of think about it. So I <laughs> yeah. know that they, they realized yeah. something and, and I don't know if they set precedent with that. That's what I'm also very curious about. But uh, it's it's kind of a work of art. Work of art. Yeah. I, like, should we call this the Invisisave? Like <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay, we'll do that. All right. Here's the backstory. Okay. Um, a friend of mine started texting me about this as it was unfolding. Uh, but I, the first thing I did was I looked at the box scores when the game was over. Who did it list with the blown save? Not Edwin Diaz. It listed Brad Brock. So I checked every site, and they all had Brad Brock listed as blowing the save. So think about this. If that was the case, it would have meant a guy getting a blown save for walking a hitter he never technically <laughs> faced. <laughs> That's, that can't be right. So, you know, I checked with Elias Sports Bureau. They told me that I was right. Those box scores were wrong. I started sending them copies of the box scores to show I was nuts. And they said, no, no, you're right. So then they ordered everybody to fix it. <laughs> okay. But all right, even after they fixed it, it meant a guy had blown a save despite <laughs> not even being on the field where the save was blown. <laughs> okay. Still the most metsy and blown save ever. It has to be, doesn't it? Well, and it also had to be with DeGrom starting. Like That's just mandatory. Had to. Had to. I mean, this guy, he's going to win a Cy Young one year and go two and three. He's going to, you know, in a, in a full season, <laughs> 245 innings pitch, two and three, and, and get a Cy Young out of it. So, so. Yeah. So, it, it, I, we, I'm not going to blame Jacob DeGrom for that happening, but just so classic. Now, here's my favorite strange but true moment. And it's another Mets game. Uh, this is Mets-Yankees last Friday. It's game two of a doubleheader at Yankee Stadium. But guess what, Doug? It's the Mets, not the Yankees, who are batting last because it's 2020. That's all you have to say. <laughs> 2020. Uh, so once again, it's Gary Cohen Day. Here at Starkville, we're going to listen to Gary Cohen describe this magic moment. And Rosario clocks one deep left field. Back goes Gardner at the wall. It's out of here! Ahmed Rosario gives the Mets the win with a two-run homer. A walk-off two-run homer for Ahmed Rosario in the bottom of the seventh. And the Mets sweep the doubleheader from the Yankees as they win the nightcap 4-3. to three. They rally in their final turn at bat in the nightcap and win it in walk-off fashion on the road. How do you do that? <laughs> How do you do that? It's 2020. Let me repeat. Yes, what you just heard was the Yankees getting walked off in Yankee Stadium. And that's a thing that is not supposed to happen. But, Doug, it happened here in 2020, the strangest season ever. So I know what you're thinking, man. How rare is this? I'm going to tell you. Now, um, you know, we've kicked this around a lot because we, we've definitely had teams getting walked off in their home park in suspended games. But because it's a way more fun tidbit, we're going to ignore all those games, okay? If we do, if we ignore them, then the last walk-off home run 
by a visiting hitter was hit by a guy named Ed McKean. And if that doesn't ring a bell, it's because he played for the 1899 St. Louis Perfectos and he hit the home yeah, he hit the home run at the ballpark of the late great Cleveland Spiders. It was May 12th, 1899. Uh, I'm going to just give you a word about those Cleveland Spiders because they're one of my favorite teams of all time. Doug, do you know that they went 20 and 134 that year? 20 and 134. And over their last 41 games, this was their record. 1 and 40. So they could lose almost every way imaginable, including getting walked off in their home park. And that makes them just like the 2020 Yankees. So, Doug, it doesn't get much stranger than truer than that, does it? Now, how did it – I mean, there was, there was not a pandemic. 1899? Yeah, like how did they – Oh. Was there rain? Some rain? No, I, I, no, I can answer this question too. Uh, the Elias Sports Bureau filled, filled me in on this a couple of weeks ago, and I wrote that story about what a home game is. Um, for many years, up until the fifties, I believe they told me the home team had the option to bat first. Okay, now it used to happen a lot in the 19th century. It almost never happened in this century, but this was one of those deals where the home team decided, ah, what the heck, we'll bat first. So that that's how it happened to the Cleveland Spiders. Weren't you trying to come up with a a, a new name for a walk off in the wrong park? Yeah, I mean, so you can't say you you know you're at your own park here. You can't really walk off in someone's stadium, right? Because you know. Because that's their home turf, so you're a you're a guest. So how do you push someone out? That's a, that's a, you know a, in their own home, right? Mm-hmm. So I tried to come up with something. You know, I thought about like annex. You know, if you're like annexing annexing a state, uh, <laughs> eviction, maybe like you know there's something you know uh, you know something along those lines. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, you know, so there's some sort of invading component there. Uh-huh. I thought about squatting, you know, when you're, you're sort of squatting, uh, you know, in some cases we talk about cyber squatting, but you're squatting, not really supposed to be there, uh, but the person has to leave even though it's their, their land. You know, so, you know, the, the, there's got to be some land history we can pull in here. Probably not fun land history, but, you know, something that we've done uh, in, in, in throughout society of, of taking over someone else's house. So, uh, yeah, but we can't, walk off doesn't work. So, you know, squat off. Annex, you know, I like the word off. It's just, you know, it's got to be, it's now by force. You're pushing them out of the stadium. Uh, I, one, one tidbit, by the way, is I, um, I happened to just turn that game on. I didn't know what was going on. And, and so I didn't, it, it, my mind was frozen for a second when I, cause I see Rosario hit the home run off of Chapman. He's coming around the bases and I'm like, wait a minute, why is the game over? You know, I just had, I just, one of those perfect moments of walking in with little information. Uh, so I, that was a real <laughs> organic ex- experience. Like, wow, that is really crazy. What just happened? So yeah. 2020, yeah. If you watched carefully, you'll see that even Araldus Chapman didn't know what was happening. He's he's motioning to the umpire for a new ball. <laughs> right. No, the game is over. Go home. Now, were, they, were they wearing whites? And like, I was... Yeah. Yeah, they yeah, were. This is all... This is all part of the uh, we don't know what a home game is anymore thing where Elias has insisted that 
The home team is not the team that bats last. It's the team in whose park the game is played. Got it? Got so it. So, therefore, it still counts as a Yankees home game, but they got walked off <laughs> at Yankee Stadium. And if this isn't a Twitter poll waiting a, to happen. On a road uh, game. Yeah. You got it. When, once this podcast is available to the masses, I want a Doug Glanville Twitter poll. Got it? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. All right. That's going to do it for this week's Starkville. Let me remind you again that Starkville is now available in its entirety absolutely free everywhere you get your podcasts so be sure to subscribe and follow starkville and give us a good rating if you enjoy us uh oh also don't forget you can find us at the athletic app and the athletic website and if you'd like to read our work or the fantastic work of our fantastic staff there is no better sports writing being done anywhere than you will find in the athletic So if you've thought about subscribing, we are currently offering a free trial. So check us out. You'll be grateful you did. Also remember, you too can be part of this podcast, just like Jesse Hannigan today. We are now inviting the listener who submits the most fun trivia question of the week to join us right here in the podcast and prove once again, there's almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong, except for the one that Jesse asked today. So, to join us, you just need to submit a great baseball trivia question. You can email it to us at starkvilleattheathletic.com, or you can do what most people do and what Jesse did. Just shoot it at us at Twitter. You can find Doug Glanville at... at Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. Piece of cake. Yep, and you can find me at Jason St. That's J A Y S O N S T. Just remember, hashtag your question, hashtag Starkville QS. So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Mark Shapiro for visiting us. Thanks to Jesse Hannigan for the trivia question. Thanks to our mayor, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. We will see you next week on Starkville.